Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. I think our crowd is starting to come back, and I think that's great. Of course, we sympathize with those who don't feel comfortable getting out, and we appreciate them tuning in online, and we're glad that we have that capability as well. You know, Family Center was uh, more packed this morning than it has been, so that's, that's good too. That's encouraging. So, have you noticed how creative we've gotten with gender reveals and birth announcements? They've almost gotten a little out of hand, haven't they? You know, even though you can send a postcard in the mail telling people that you're going to have a child, many have taken to social media and taken things to another level, like this. I don't know if you can read that, but it says eviction notice. Please note that you are required to vacate the premises within 27 weeks as the new tenant is expected to move in. Here's another one. I love this one. So you Mario Brothers fans would understand this one. Here's another one. So yeah, you've got coffee, you've got tea, you've got milk. Here's the last one. So this is a movie poster. I don't know if you can tell. I thought this was pretty creative. And the movie is entitled, it's coming this summer, Sibling Rivalry. You know, we, folks have, uh, have taken things to the next level when it comes to birth announcements. And what we have been talking about the last, I don't know, two or three weeks are birth announcements, really. Two babies being born, right? The first was born as a sign to King Ahaz and to Judah that the enemy would not win, that they ultimately would be vindicated. This first child's name was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. The last two weeks, I've tried to make a joke with that. None of you laughed. I said, those of you who are wanting to name your child a biblical name, why not Meher Shalal Hashbaz? Um, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being named that and being outside and your mother calls you for dinner? Meher Shalal Hashbaz, come in. It's time for supper. Or hurry up, plunder. It's time for supper. Because that's what the name means. It means swift is the spoil, speedy is the prey. And as we said the last couple of weeks, names always meant something in the Bible. And in fact, they were often tied to a person's destiny. And Meher Shalal Hashbaz is a name of plunder, but it's also a name of victory. Assyria was going to flood the nation of Judah like a river that had overflowed its banks. And God is using the son of Isaiah to communicate his plan. There will be plunder, but there will be hope and victory as well. Notice verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8. This is uh, some verses we have used several times over the last few weeks. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. In other words, the counsel of the wicked is going to come to nothing. And you know why? Because these are the people of God. They are the Emmanuel. God is with them. Therefore, no enemy would triumph over them. There is hope in the midst of all this doom and gloom. God is going to swallow up the veil that was spread over the nations. He's going to swallow up death. That's Isaiah 25, verses 7 and 8. God, through his people, is executing a plan to bring humanity back from exile and give them a land of inheritance where there would be no more death. And how is this going to happen? Well, the answer is through another baby. Chapter 9, there's a birth announcement. Verse 1 and following, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So out of the darkness, there's going to come a great light. Understand that for the Jews, Messiah was often associated with light. And as we've been talking about on Wednesday nights with our series on the Minor Prophets as well as on Sunday mornings the last few weeks, the Messiah was a light that offered a door of hope. Although there was a day of judgment, although there would be curse, there would be blessing as well, there's always a silver lining. God is not through. And here we see it. The final enemy is going to be destroyed and the light of the world is going to triumph over sin and death. But unlike the first baby, the second baby has to do with us. Notice the wording, for a child will be born to us. Who is the us here? Well, it's you and me. We're the us that's being talked about. Also, the Jews are being talked about here because they also anticipated the Messiah, but we know how that played out when Jesus came. Isaiah is prophesying about a new king who's going to bring a new kingdom and a new hope. Isaiah's also got the unenviable task of trying to describe something that's indescribable. You ever tried to do that? You ever tried to describe something that is indescribable? You ever tried to describe the Grand Canyon to somebody who's never been there? Or the Grand Tetons? Or Pike's Peak? In all your efforts to describe it, it's difficult, right? I can imagine how frustrating it must have been for Neil Armstrong to try to describe what it was like to walk on the moon. Couldn't you? Or how about Thomas? We often call him Doubting Thomas, and I think that's a little unfair because I think all of us probably would have been in the same, same boat as him. You're telling me Jesus is up walking around? I mean, I can understand why he'd want to see it for himself. It's hard to describe that, right? I'll say this, too, for risk of offending you. As a person born and raised in Arkansas, you Texans have no idea about how great biscuits and chocolate gravy is. No idea. You have your brisket, and I'll grant you that's great stuff. But you have no idea what this goodness is like. And I can try my best to describe it to you, but all efforts will fall short. And if you were to try it yourselves, you would not be able to argue with me. Your knees would buckle, you'd fall to the ground because it is so good. And you don't understand sweet tea either, but that's a discussion for another time. So when we talk about describing the indescribable, that is what Isaiah is doing. Of course, he's using the Holy Spirit's words, not his own, but still, he's trying to describe something that really no one's going to understand until some 700 years later, right? You can imagine how difficult that task would have been. So he uses some names to try to help his cause. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God eternal father, prince of peace. All names are monikers that refer to the Messiah. 
that is to come. And of course, the one we're concerned about this morning is wonderful counselor. You look at that word or words, wonderful counselor. Think about how many times in our English language we assign a superlative to something that's very ordinary. You think about that. We tend to overstate the ordinary or the menial. And in doing so, we tend to understate the magnificent. You know, we can say things like, this corn dog is awesome. You know, do we really mean that this corn dog is as awesome as something that really deserves the moniker? Or these biscuits smothered in chocolate gravy are out of this world. This sweet tea is marvelous. We can go a little overboard with the superlatives. I find it amusing when people say things like, there's, there's nothing worse than, and you know, they tack on something to that. There's nothing worse than losing your car keys. I think somebody who's had cancer would argue with you, right? There are things worse than that. But we tend to overstate the obvious, and we understate the things that deserve something that is more superlative, right? And it's not our fault. I mean, it's just we don't mean any harm by it. It's just the way that we communicate, right? We understand that there is a vast difference from, you know, the ordinary to the, the magnificent. If I were to say this corn dog is awesome and then turn around and, around and say that my wife is awesome, obviously you understand that my wife and a corn dog are not on the same level, right? Although I've had some really good corn dogs, but that's, that's a discussion for another time. When it comes to throwing around superlatives, we tend to apply them to things that just really don't matter as much. And I say all that to say this. The word wonderful in the Hebrew language is the word palah. And every time the word wonderful was used by a Jew, it was only in reference to God. They didn't throw that superlative. They referred to God or his marvelous works with the word wonderful. And that term was reserved just for those things. It simply means extraordinary or marvelous. This word was often used in reference to God's judgments and redemption. Both concepts that are certainly deserving of extraordinary and marvelous, right? Nobody in the first century or even before would say things like, this manna is wonderful. Or this water from the rock is wonderful. No, that was a term reserved for God. Not only that, the noun form of palah is used to express the extraordinary aspects of God's dealings with his people. For instance, Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Listed some others there as well as examples to show how this word palah is used. I want you to picture being an Israelite, walking on dry ground as the Red Sea is parted, how you would have described that experience. My guess is it would be something like marvelous or wonderful, right? Imagine standing on Mount Carmel, standing by Elijah when fire fell from the sky and consumed the wood and the sacrifice and licked up the water surrounding it. What, have been, what would have been running through your mind as you saw that for yourself? Had you been there to witness Joshua commanding the sun to stand still in the Valley of Agilon, how would you have thought of that experience? How would you have described it? My guess is wonderful or marvelous or some superlative like that. How do you describe those kind of things? It's hard until you experience them yourselves. You may not have been there in the Old Testament to witness these wonderful signs being performed, but God is still working. You do realize that, right? 
I mean, that's what Isaiah is telling us, is that God is not done. He is still pointing toward the time when God's anointed will continue his marvelous acts of redemption and judgment. But there's a second part of this name. Besides wonderful, we have counselor. Your version of the Bible may separate these two. You may use a version of the Bible that puts a comma between wonderful and counselor. Uh, Based on my research, I don't think there should be a comma there, and the earliest manuscripts didn't use a comma anyway, right? But I think wonderful and counselor go together. I also don't think it's a point of contention because whether they go together or not, God is still wonderful and he's still a counselor. Whether he's a wonderful counselor or he's wonderful and a counselor, it doesn't matter, right? But when you look at the second part of this description of God, of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, God in the flesh, you see this word counselor, what does that mean? What exactly does it mean when we hear the term counselor as applied to the coming Messiah? Well, it can mean a few things. It can mean minister. It can refer to an advisor or a consultant. It can also mean attorney or advocate. But here in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet seems to be using the term counselor in reference to a king who leads his people. A wise king who gives wise counsel as well as a brilliant military strategist. All things that describe Jesus in a way, right? Let's shift gears for just a second. I promise we'll bring all this together at the end. What do you think of when you hear the term salvation? What comes to mind? My guess is what comes to mind is being saved. I've been saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from my sins. That's how we talk about salvation. Salvation is being saved. Saved from what? means being saved from my sins. What am I saved from? Sin and death. But what if there was more to it than just that? What if there was a bigger picture? Now, it's not less than that. Because certainly that is applicable. Salvation does refer to being saved. But what if there was more to it than that? Look with me at 1 Peter 3.21. From a biblical perspective, there is more to it than just being saved from sin. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I am forgiven, right? True, yes. I am saved from sin and death. That's what baptism means. But you know, we often read verses like this and we say, see, Peter says you have to be baptized. But folks, Peter is not talking to people who need to be baptized. Peter is talking to people who have already been baptized, and what he is telling them is, your baptism now saves you. Now, right now, it's saving you. So what does that mean? What are we supposed to get from this? Well, we often use it as a proof text for why you have to be baptized, and I'm not saying that's completely wrong, but that's certainly missing the point of what Peter's trying to make. And we do this quite often, so here's a good time to talk a little bit about how we interpret the Bible. Peter is saying that your baptism is currently saving you. You people who have been baptized, your baptism is now saving you. It's important for us to understand that people in the first century didn't always talk like we do. We tend to assign theological or spiritual language to a text, right? Or we talk in theological or spiritual terms. We talk about the plan of salvation or the scheme of redemption, right? And that's not wrong necessarily. I'm just saying that's how we talk. We got to understand that our first century brethren, and even before that, didn't necessarily do those kind of things, okay? 
So when you talk about what 1 Peter 3.21 means as baptism now saving us or what does salvation in the bigger picture mean, turn over to Psalm 7. And there's a lot of places we could turn, but I think Psalm 7 is really good. If you look at Psalm 7, verses 1 and 2, it says, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. What does the psalmist want salvation from? Sin? No. Sin is not anywhere in question here. What is the psalmist begging God to save him from? from his pursuers, right? From his enemies. He don't want to die. He even says his soul is in danger. And understand, we've talked about this before, soul does not mean disembodied spirit. You have your soul and then you have your body. For the Jew, it's all one thing. This is, this is my soul, all of this, okay? His life was in danger is what he's saying. My life is in danger. Please, God, save me because I don't want to be killed. I don't want to be murdered. What we tend to think, and when we look at a psalm like this or any passage like this, we tend to say, oh, he's, you know, see, God's the great rescuer. He saves you from your sin. But sometimes the language is pretty simple. Sometimes it's just, I want salvation. I want somebody to rescue me because I'm in hot water. I have enemies pursuing me. I'm going to be dead if somebody doesn't step in and do something. Now take that message in Psalm 7 and apply it to 1 Peter 3.21. Who is Peter addressing in 1 Peter 3? He is addressing persecuted Christians that had an enemy, right? A physical enemy. They were going to be killed for their faith. Is there an application when it comes to salvation that they're saved from their sins? Absolutely. But there's a bigger picture here as well. They needed rescuing. They were crying out for vindication. Look at 1 Peter 2 and 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Like the psalmist, Jesus says, I trust you, God. I take refuge in you. Jesus believed that God the Father would vindicate him and raise him from the dead. That's what the psalmist believed as well. He's trusting in God to take care of him in that situation. We don't have time to read through Psalm 7 in its entirety. You can do that on your own sometime. But we see that message ringing loud and clear. And not just in Psalm 7. There's, there's many passages that this theme is reiterated over and over again in Scripture. Peter is appealing to that same theme. He even appeals to Noah and his family being saved during the flood. Look at verses 20 and following of 1 Peter 3. Actually, just verse 20. It says, Who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What was Noah saved from? Sin? Well, in a sense. But Noah was saved from those who lived among him that were evil and perverse. Their thoughts were wicked and violent all the time, the Bible says. These people were disobedient, yet God waited and waited and waited until finally he rescued Noah and his family. Why? Because God was Noah's refuge. Because Noah trusted and obeyed, the world was washed clean, and Noah and his family were saved through water. That's why Peter's making that connection. He ties it all together to say, baptism now saves you. Now, not just in the sense that you're forgiven, although that's part of it, 
There is a great rescue operation. God is going to vindicate those that are His. So those of you who are facing the enemy, facing persecution, those who appeal to God for a good conscience, those who say, I'm leaving it up to you, God, I entrust my soul to you, He's going to raise them up on the last day. And that's precisely what baptism is. It's an act of surrender. It's entrusting myself to the one who judges rightly. It's believing that God will rescue me, that He is currently rescuing me, right? Because if you're a Christian, if you have been immersed in the waters of baptism, you have a hope like no one else. Baptism is now saving you. It's now vindicating you. The overall theme of the Bible is that all of humanity and all of creation, go back and read Romans 8, all of humanity, all of creation is in desperate need of rescuing, in desperate need of redemption. We have an enemy. Sin and death. Satan and his forces of darkness are pursuing us, and we need deliverance. We're we're not any different than the Israelites in the sense that we, too, are in captivity to a certain degree. We're living in exile. We're not any different than the Israelites back in Egypt under the bondage of slavery. None of them could have said, well, maybe maybe Pharaoh will turn turn around his thinking. Maybe he'll change his mind and let us go. That wasn't going to happen. They needed a hero. They needed a rescuer. They needed someone to step in on their behalf. And that's exactly what we need. We need that hero, don't we? Someone to rescue us because we can't do this ourselves. And so, the anointed one, the light of the world, the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, the marvelous wise king, and the brilliant military strategist who has devised the perfect plan for destroying the enemy, And delivering the people has come. Peter's message to the persecuted church was, you're being saved. Hold on. Trust in God's plan. That's what the psalmist did in Psalm 7. That's what Isaiah's message was as well. What's happening right now is a sign that God is working, not a sign that God has abandoned you. That's what the Israelites believed, and, and, and Isaiah's trying to tell him, no, God's not giving up on you. There's more to this. Just hang on. Peter is saying, because the hero has come, you are being delivered. And the message of Isaiah and the message of Peter is exactly the same. Hang on. There's more to come. What's happening in your world right now is not all that there is. No matter how bad it gets, it's not all that there is. I've said this enough. You're probably getting sick of hearing me say it, but we are like Israel. Their story is our story. And we are halfway through the Red Sea, about to come out on the other side. There is a past tense to my salvation, right? There is a past tense to your salvation. We have been saved. But there's a future tense to your salvation as well. There is a day when all of this hope is going to come to fruition and we will live in eternity with the Heavenly Father. But there is a present tense to your salvation as well, right? There is a sense in which it's ongoing. Baptism is now saving you. It didn't once save you and then you were done, which unfortunately is how we often present it. You are never done obeying the gospel. Over and over again, Paul and Peter appeal to the fact you need to remember your baptism because it's now saving you. It was the start line and you haven't reached the finish line yet. Do not forget your baptism You are constantly obeying the gospel each and every day. There is a present tense to your salvation. Why? For a child will be born to us and will be given to us. 
we get to experience this promise that was made to the Israelites. We get to see it come to fruition. We get to be a part of this great rescue operation. I don't want to contort Scripture, and I don't want to take away or add anything from it, but I really think that based on my study of this Scripture, we can actually read it like this as well. For a hero will be born to us. A deliverer will be given to us. A hero has come to save us, to rescue us, and understand that's not just about being forgiven of your sins, although that's hugely important, but there's a bigger picture at play here. And the bigger picture is we have the hope of something future, a resurrection where we get to live with our Heavenly Father for all eternity. How can we not get excited about that, right? And it all goes back to this. That's where it all starts. The great rescue operation kicked off, even before this really, but in terms of our salvation, it begins here. For a child will be born to who? To us. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for this opportunity to be together. We pray, God, that, that we can buy into this great rescue operation, that we can remember our baptism, that we can live out the gospel every single day and realize that we are never done obeying the gospel, that we can show you to others, that we can shine your light, that we can glorify your name in all that we do, that we can remember that you are our wonderful counselor and that we will rise in victory, that no matter what happens to us in the here and now, we win. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you a simple question this morning. Do you have hope? If you don't have hope, why? What's keeping you from clinging on to this hope that is offered? The Bible is a book of failures, but it's also a book of hope. Your failure does not have to be final. It doesn't have to be fatal. Do something about it this morning. If you need to respond to the invitation, Clinton's going to lead us in a song, please do that. If you'd like to talk to one of the shepherds or myself afterwards, please do that. But don't leave here without hope. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?